Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Chef Gigi Gajero will join us to discuss food fight. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. to the Grok Science Show. Well, make lunch, not war. It's probably the anthem for most of us with picky eaters on our hands, and of course we're talking about children, but how can we improve the eating habits of our kids? Joining us today is Chef Gigi Gajero. Uh, Chef Gigi is a nationally recognized expert in children's culinary education. She is the former dean and academic director of Le Cordon Bleu's hospitality management program and founder of Kids Culinary Adventures, a professional culinary school for children and teens. She's written the new book, Food Fight a practical hands-on guide filled with simple solution, uh, and it's for parents of picky eaters. And Chef Gigi, we're very pleased to have you today on the Grok's Science Show. Well, hello, Dr. Lee, and thank you for having me. I'm so excited to finally be on your show. Uh, well, it's, uh, the pleasure's all ours. Probably need to mention, uh, I've got two young picky eaters on our hands, and it's uh, certainly <laughs> have this book out there. I'm curious, first off, to ask, why did you decide to write this book? Okay, well, this is a really funny story, because while I was the academic director at Le Cordon Bleu, I had two picky eaters of my own, and they were about six and seven years old, and um, I opened, actually, a culinary school for children with them to teach them a little bit about business and math, science, reading, and art. We anchored through uh, the... Um, medium of cooking, right? So during that process where I really thought that I opened the school to teach children about culinary arts, what I organically saw happening was that the parents were coming to me and saying, how can I get my child to accept a new food? Or, you know, what do I do about this picky eater? And so, um, you know, here I was just thinking I was teaching kids, but it just naturally flew into the the parent thing. So through the years, which I I spent about 10, 15 years in this um, industry with just the children, and so I decided to take all the knowledge that I gathered along my way and put it into a book so that parents can reference it um, whenever they have a chance. They just don't, you know, always have access to me. So that's how it was formed. Food Fight for Parents and Picky Eaters. Here it is. Well, why why are some kids such picky eaters? Okay, well, Dr. Lee, first of all, um, like all of us adults, children really want to feel that they have some power and control over their lives, right? So often they do that, they like to do that with like doing the reverse of what's asked of them, right, to exercise power. And, you know, things like we can even compare that to like potty training, right? But one way that a child can really express their power and control is really through food, right? And it actually works, okay? So it's unreasonable for us to force a child to eat, right? So we can all, you know, we all know like you just said, you have picky eaters. We all know children who refuse to eat whatever it is they're disclaiming to like. So realistically, if you pay attention, 
you can really see this has more to do with oppositional behavior than anything else. So now you have to go home and really observe your children today. <laughs> so is, is it, have I accidentally turned my kid into a picky eater? Well, you know, to my knowledge, um, I have to really say this is not really a result of your parenting, and it's really not a result of anybody's parenting. All children are different, right? Some will happily eat anything placed in front of them, you know, and some have a repertoire of a half a dozen foods that they will eat. It's really crazy. I was talking on the phone yesterday to um, a parent, and she told me my daughter will only eat beige foods. Now, clearly, that isn't something that the parent has done through their parenting, and if you have more than one child like you do, you might find that one is picky and the other might eat almost anything, or there's exercising peer pressure at the table. So maybe one of your children is not as picky, but because the other one is, the child is going to follow suit, right? So again, it's not really a result of your parenting. However, um, it could be the way that Mary, many parents present or represent food, okay? So that's a whole nother four years of college, if you will. Um, and there's, there's a lot of dynamics to it. So very young children, for instance, say you're trying to get your toddler to sit down at the dinner table and have a three-course meal with you. Okay, well, that's an unreasonable expectation that parents put forth. So that could have a little bit to do with parenting, but I think it's more with parent education. You know, we're not parents don't come with a manual, you know, here's the baby, here's the book, right? So um, a, a lot in my book talks about, you know, those kind of things, like don't be so hard on yourself as a parent, like how are you supposed to know that really we learn the developmental reasons for everything related to our child's growth as we grow with our children, right? So we have to keep in mind things like between one and three years of age, children are going to be poking at their food, right? Toddlers might not sit at the table for a three-course meal, you know, things like that. Also, after one year of age of that rapid growth that we see in our children, toddlers will gain a lot of weight, and therefore they start to slow down a little bit. When you see, you see how they get those growth spurts, they get real chunky, and then they spurt up, and they get thin again, and then they get chunky again. So what's happening during those processes of growth is that children require less food intake when they get that to that chunky stage, you know? So maybe your child's not going to be consuming as many um, calories and stuff like that's going to really affect their eating um, habits. So I always try to tell parents, don't punish, teach. And as parents, we need to learn. Does that make sense? Like most things, is paying attention to the, the cues that your kid has, their needs, their body's needs, that kind of thing. Exactly. And that's hard to do when you're a new parent, you know, because we don't know what we don't know, you know. And then there's other things like toddlers inherently snack their way through the day, right? That's just the way they are. And um, so they're more, you know, it's more compatible for a toddler to have like a busy explorer lifestyle meals than actually sitting them down to a full fed feast. Another thing that can keep a toddler from eating at the table, and this sounds really crazy, but of course only another seasoned parent will be able to identify this and tell you, is that when a child is sitting at the table, think about it. Look at their feet. Are their feet anchored on their chair or are their feet dangling? 
what would it feel like for us? Have you ever been on those crazy rides at, you know, a, at like, you know, one of um, amusement park where you're, you're up in the Ferris wheel. What if you didn't have that bottom part and your feet were just dangling? That would be a, an odd feeling for you, right? Maybe something that wouldn't feel so secure. So if a child is like, you know, their mind is elsewhere, they can't concentrate on, on sitting at the table either, you know? Also, I think um, as a parent, we learn more about developmental stages as, you know, as we go. And I think parents that take a look at this chapter in my book, it'll help them relax a little bit. So no, to answer your question, it's not your fault. <laughs> Making an environment that's comfortable for the kid to eat and again, paying attention to their cues. Is there, is there something different about how kids perceive or taste food? Well, you know, um, I'm glad you asked that question, doctor, because children actually do have, you know, their palates are a little bit more sensitive, just like an elderly person. So they have dynamic profile in their taste buds, too. Um, One thing that I used to do with my children when I was trying to introduce green food was I would freeze the peas and I would offer them the frozen peas because anything frozen kind of tones down or any food that's chilled, and a chef would know this, right? And this is where I take my my culinary instinct and bring it into the feeding the children. Um, Foods that are chilled won't have such a bitter impact. So that's how I introduced my children to eating green peas. And uh, so they would snack on them uh, frozen and uh, slowly start to introduce the flavor into their little taste buds. You talk in your book about using umami. Uh, why do you use it? Uh, can it help food more palatable? Wow. Okay. I'm glad you asked that question too, because chefs and umami just go together. But first of all, before I get into that, why don't I tell the listeners a little bit about what umami is? Because sometimes it's confusing. Um, so umami is a very dynamic uh, subject, okay? And it's spelt U-M-A-M-I, and it's pronounced O-O-M-O-M-M-Y, umami. So umami was discovered in 1908 by a Japanese chemist, okay? And that was a really long time ago. And um, the funny part about it is, is that umami has always been a great topic of debate um, since its existence amongst scientists, okay? And in 1985, the term was actually recognized as a scientific term. So for chefs, that was a really big deal because umami is used to actually describe the taste of glutamates and nucleotides, okay? So umami represents taste, uh, the taste of an amino acid, okay? We all know what amino acid is, but umami represents the taste, uh, like L-glutamate, right? And a few others, without getting too technical, because I am a chef, I'm not a scientist, but, you know, culinary does kind of uh, teeter on a little science area there. So umami is usually described as a pleasant or kind of meaty or brothy taste, right? And it has a very long-lasting mouth-watering sensation. My mouth is actually salivating right now just thinking about talking about umami. Okay, so it usually coats our tongue, and the sensation is picked up by all of our our peptides, over 52 peptides on our tongue receptors. So um, all of these are responsible for picking up flavors, okay? And it's an effect to be balanced, definitely, with uh, taste and flavor. So um, it has a long history in cooking and some ingredients that 
people wouldn't normally think to use on a regular basis that stand alone. Some people might even go, oh, wow, I would have never thought of that. Um, come to play when we're, we're getting involved in, in um, flavors. So now we can step into the tongue, right? So let's talk about the four primary, we have four primary tastes, right? We know that live on our tongue. They live there. We have sweetness, sourness, bitterness, and saltiness, right? Now, the umami is the fifth taste, okay? And it doesn't live on our tongue with sweetness, sourness, bitterness, and saltiness, okay? But where it does live, it resides in certain foods. So when we actually um, eat the food that's naturally occurring, we gain a different sense of flavor in our mouths, okay? Like, for instance, meat fish, vegetables, some vegetables, um, dairy products. And so some kids might enjoy these typical experiences, right, with umami, okay? And, you know, there's also the opportunity that some might not, but when humans eat, we also eat with all our senses to form judgments, right? And taste happens to be the most significant out of our five human senses. So enhancing the sense of taste by adding an umami flavor ingredient can actually taste the flavor sensation on our tongue. So Dr. Lee, chances are you are already a big fan of umami and don't even know it yet. Okay. And many people are, for instance, Umami is uh, helpful in creating flavor combinations, okay, and it makes our brain happy, um, which is the best part, right? So a little bit of knowledge about food and where it naturally occurs from and where it's containing the fifth sense, you can get that hard-to-put-your-finger-on sensation. Like, have you ever tried something and went, mm, what is that, Right? So most food pairings are engaged in the sweet and salty portions of our tongues, right? So this is another really interesting fact, too, is that in prehistoric history, there's a resilient link of bonding taste with emotion. And it's really coming forward also about human evolution. So taste has always really been a survival sense, if you think about it, right? Um, taste helps us identify foods that we're consuming all the time, right? So maybe like a bitter or sour flavor, if to say we were just a couple of Cro-Magnon people walking around the planet right now together, okay? And, you know, we're, we're eating leaves or picking berries. If we initiate a bitter or sour taste in our mouths, maybe that's an indication of poisonous or inedible plant-based material we've just eaten, Right. Um, taste can also help us identify like decomposing protein-rich foods. So maybe something that's like, you know, a, a bad piece of meat that we shouldn't be eating that later on is going to hurt our, our stomachs or our gastrointestinal. Uh, sweet and salty tastes are attractive, right? And often a sign that our foods are really rich in nutrients, right? So that's kind of where the umami taste falls in. It's, it's somewhat similar to the taste of meaty broth. It's usually caused by the glumatic acid, um, uh, the amino acid is, you know, many parts of proteins that are found in foods and some plants. Here's, um, here's some examples, okay? Ripe tomatoes, you'd never think. Meat, how's this one? This is my favorite, Parmesan cheese, okay? All contain extraordinary allocations of glumatic acid. Asparagus contains asparagus acid, um, but 
Let me ask you a question, Dr. Lee. Have you ever enjoyed a sweet and salty flavor combination mixed together like a salty pretzel, maybe dipped into a, a sweet compote jam or maybe plunged into a melted chocolate? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What a beautiful pairing, right? Yeah. Or how about something like a fresh pear with a strong smelling cheese combination? That's my favorite, drizzled with a little honey. Well, those type of food pairings, those also can create the sensation of umami. And um, here's an experiment, okay? A long time ago, I went to uh, a class for umami. This is probably about 25 years ago in my culinary history. And I'll never forget this. We have this, this is an adult experiment and try it sometime. You know, it's not, I'm not going to say that you have a bad bottle of white Zinfandel or a bad bottle of white wine laying around, but just in case you do, Choose the mediocre tasting wine, take a sip of it, and I really want you to savor the flavor on your tongue, okay? Next, eat an acidic green olive, one that you would probably find in my martini, okay? Now, take a sip of the wine, eat the acidic martini, but I want you to note the flavor of the mediocre tasting wine at first, okay, before you eat the olive. Eat the olive. Once you swallow the olive, I want you to take another taste of the wine. Immediately, you will notice that the mediocre wine is suddenly going to taste miraculous. And that is the actual change in taste that is led by the umami experience. It's remarkable. So how can we incorporate this and how can we use it then to, to, to help foods better for, for the kids? I know. It's, isn't it crazy? Okay, so... Because I'm a chef, this is, is how I go after picky eating is through using umami to the science of flavors, okay? Because as a chef, we work with umami all the time to enhance any dish that we're preparing. And so at, at um, parents, I think, once they get to the point where they've actually used some tools that I've described in my book about identifying their picky eater, what type of picky eater they have, and how to go about bringing the picky eater to the food. The food should taste good, right? There's nothing worse than spending all that time trying to teach your child, eat the broccoli, and then the broccoli is horrible, right? So you've just spent all that time working up, and it's a disaster. And then what happens is that your child is not going to trust you in the future, right? Because you just presented a horrible tasting piece of food, right? So with incorporating the umami into your home pantry and into some of your recipes, once you get the child to get to the food and actually trust you to eat the food, the food will have this extra insurance because now you've applied umami to it, okay? And it's very, very simple to do. I'm going to read off a following list of some umami-friendly ingredients so that you can understand it's not really hard to do, okay? First of all, you heard me mention earlier about Parmesan cheese, right? You can sprinkle some Parmesan cheese, grate it into scrambled eggs, into some omelets. A lot of people, when I was growing up, my Italian nonna used to take the rind of the cheese and throw it into the soup or into the sauce, right? And a lot of that was, of course, to add flavor because the Italian nonna always knew what she was doing, right? <laughs> but a lot of it was, too, because they didn't want to waste any food. So it saved with 
uh, their food costs mechanisms that they had in place for their family budget. So there's a twofold on that. Um, you can also use fish sauce. Okay, now I hear a lot of parents when I say put a little fish sauce on it, they go, oh, what? Why would my picky eater want to eat fish sauce? Okay, now it sounds like scary and crazy, but used sparingly, fish sauce gives the most umami boost that's absolutely unbelievable. And there's less, there's less aroma that you would think. So when it goes into the food, you can do a little, we call an umami bomb or an umami blast, okay? And, you know, have you ever eaten Thai food? You know, um, uh, you, it's notably like pad thai, so delicious, right? Like Thai chicken soup. Well, guess what? The umami blast from the fish sauce is the major reason why you find it so delicious, really. So you can go ahead and you can go to your local uh, grocer and find um, – you can also buy your fish sauce online and buy good quality um, you can splash, in, like I said, into salad dressings. You can put it in pasta dishes. You can drop it into your casseroles. And it's, it really goes undetected. But what it's going to do is going to create that umami experience on your tongue. Another uh, interesting um, is shiitake mushrooms, okay? Now, this is another high-profile ingredient that you wouldn't necessarily go, oh, yeah, I'm going to feed my picky eater some fish sauce until it's shiitake mushrooms, right? I mean, you must think I'm out of my mind even talking about it. But again, if you uh, take shiitake mushrooms, you can soak them in warm water for about 20 minutes, and you can reconstitute them. You can chop them. You can add them to soups and sauces. There are a lot of picky eaters that are not liking the texture of little bits and pieces sometimes. So what you can do to avoid that is actually filter the soaking liquid from the shiitake mushrooms that you soaked right into um, you know, a pan and add that into your soups or stews or you know, deglazing a pan. It's loaded with umami taste. A lot of times what I used to do with my children is that I would pulverize my dry shiitake mushrooms in a blender and I would make powder out of it and then I would sprinkle that in the same kind of use that you would use like salt and pepper. I would sprinkle a little um, shiitake mushroom powder over, you know, maybe a roast before prepping it and popping it into the oven. You can also search online for shiitake mushroom substrates and these are really cool blocks that come in the mail and you can grow shiitake mushrooms with your child and they can actually you can actually watch it's fascinating to watch the fungi grow and then you can use dry those in the oven with your child and get them involved and then um, just sprinkle it like salt and pepper again it's it's a it's a chef's secret weapon we also have soy sauce Worcestershire sauce, that's an ambiguous uh, condiment, and it's derived from umami because of the glutamate-rich anchovies that they use. It's customary in the recipe, so you can use the Worcestershire sauce just the way you use a soy sauce. Canned tomatoes are also very high, especially the Italian canned tomatoes specifically, um, top quality. Aside from their use in tomato sauce, canned tomatoes um, can kick up, again, soups, sides that are otherwise dull, right? Um, ketchup, okay, huge umami affluence. And cherry tomatoes are really high in umami. Mm -hmm. Meats, red meats tend to be higher in umami than other meats. Aging meats, like we, uh, you know, that's why when you go out for an adult meal, 
and you go, oh, look at the dry-aged meat. It's very expensive. So aging and curing and drying meats generally generally will just intensify the umami flavors, you know, um, especially things like prosciutto, ham. Umami can also be found in some chicken and pork. Ham is huge in umami-rich uh, ingredients. You know, you can ham and cheese, sandwiches, um, I have a recipe in my book for green eggs and ham, so that could be an umami experience. And um, fish, too, small fish such as anchovies, sardines, and uh, seaweed and kelp. You know, a lot of kids are really liking to snack on nori seaweed, so uh, that's something that's really um, trending. It's one of uh, of our go-to snacks there. Really? See? Okay, well, there you go. And uh, the dashi is like simply, you know, dashi stock you can use, um, dried fermented smoked skipjack tuna shaved into paper-thin flakes, uh, kombu, all kinds of things. So, yeah, it's just like Parmesan cheese. You know, it's crazy. But that is a trending snack for young children now is this is seaweed, kelp, the nori seaweed. And, and that's why, because kids are, like, identifying really strongly with these umami flavors. So parents need to up their arsenal in their pantry and make their lives easier by doing what chefs do and taking advantage of that, that umami flavor. Well, it's certainly a good advice. Uh, we're running slightly out of time here. I'm just wondering if maybe you have some final words regarding uh, winning the battle of mealtime here. You know, what I always tell parents in the very final bit is that I really want to say that um, our jobs are really just to make sure that the kids get the right variety of calories. I think it's really important for parents to stress less and love more. Children rising, raising kids go by so rapidly. And it's a shame to miss it if you're stressing over a little green pea. So enjoy the the moments. The years go by quickly. All right. Well, we were just listening to uh, Chef Gigi Gajero. Uh She was uh, the author of Food Fight for Parents of Picky Eaters. And Chef Gigi, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Dr. Lee, thank you so much for having me. I'm such a fan of yours. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.